0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Hey listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, 266, we visit with Michael Polel Lee, author of American Conspiracy, a thriller set in Chicago following the assassination of a presidential candidate and the disappearance of city gangbangers. Detective Jim Murphy, the Chicago PD, pursues leads that take him to Sebastian Senex, an aging pharmaceutical tycoon Determined to rig elections and cheat death with secret blood research at Promethean Pharma to restore his youth, Steve Berry, New York Times bestselling author, had this to say about the book: A stellar novel of action, adventure, and intrigue. The twists of betrayal unravel at a perfect pace, and Paul Lee nails the details of this high-caliber political drama. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com, find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at landisway.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and soon uh, print book as well. It's uh, it's a novel that uh, explores a 250 year old North Carolina mystery set in Charlotte, uh, which if solved uh, might change U.S. history. Uh, possibly the first great American government conspiracy. John Adams called it one of the greatest curiosities, one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. And Thomas Jefferson called it spurious and an apocryphal gospel. I'm talking about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which is the heart of this novel. uh, But it's modern day set in a uh, retirement community where the reality of getting older is a combination of fear, doubt, humor, and new life and where are these characters that uh, I've invented transport readers to the courtroom and then to the Virginia countryside to prove that age is just a number when searching for and finding the truth. Hope you'll check that out at LandisWay.com. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content Speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Michael, welcome to the show.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Landis.
1: Yeah, and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah. So first, let's talk a little bit about you and about the setting for this book. American Conspiracy is set in Chicago. Uh, You were, as you said, born and bred in Chicago, and you began your career as a Chicago trial lawyer there. Tell us about the Chicago you knew growing up and in your law practice. Now it differs or is similar to what we see in American Conspiracy.
0: Well, when I grew up in Chicago, many years ago, 1938, so I grew up, basically, my formative years were in the 1950s. And so it was a pleasurable city growing up. I enjoyed it. Um, I went to the University of Loyola in the city, and I had gone to Loyola Academy. So I was educated in uh, Chicago and uh, raised in Chicago. And um, it was a quite, quite a different time. It was the, it was the era of Mayor Daley where everything was stable, predictable. Uh, and for many people, it was the city that worked, as they said, uh, without many of the problems we have now in Chicago.
1: Yeah. And um, I found it interesting, uh, Michael, that you did set it uh, in in the city that you're so familiar with. Uh, but your first book, uh, The Mithras Conspiracy, uh, was a history-based mystery. And uh, a 2020 finalist in both the Eric Hoffer Book Awards and the Royal Palm Literary Awards of the Florida Rogers Association, it was set in Italy, and I'm just wondering, does that have anything to do with the fact that you directed a comparative law seminar and an annual media law conference in Parma, Italy? Partly. Yeah?
0: Partly. um, I think, let me start by saying, I I think setting was the initiating uh, impetus for me to write both books. Growing up in Chicago made an impression on me, it still lingers. Uh, in terms of my identity, who I am, where I came from, and the city of Rome also. Now I'm of Italian background, and uh, at Loyola I studied Latin, even a little Greek. Uh, I studied the classics, majored in history, uh, minored in English. So I was very steeped in the history of Europe, especially Italy. And so when I went to Rome and saw the ancient temples beneath the current churches, I was just uh, overwhelmed by how history is piled on history. And that's true, of course, throughout Europe, not just Italy, but uh, especially in Italy, 2,000 years of history. Uh, and when I came back to the States, that stuck with me always, how our history of 250 years seems like a drop in the bucket in many ways.
1: Yeah, it does. And you, you your settings are you know, integral to your story. I mean, you could feel the, you know, the intensity of the Chicago landscape in this recent book, American Conspiracy. Um, I noticed, Michael, in your bio that uh, you obtained a Fulbright scholarship in Germany, but you now live in Florida. Does that mean the next book is going to be set in Germany or Florida?
0: I don't know. It's a good <laughs> question, Landis. After I was coming to the conclusion of my first book, I knew exactly where I was going. I was going to start the second book because the protagonist of my first book, Commissario Marco Leone goes to Chicago on a sabbatical and becomes the buddy of Detective Jim Murphy. Uh, Now that I've finished the second book, I really have no idea. uh, I'm trying to follow the advice, I think, of Hemingway, who uh, influenced me a lot when I was growing up. I read all of Hemingway. And that is to let the well of imagination fill up. I'm not trying to force it. Uh, I'm just trying to see what happens.
1: Yeah, well, um, I think a- I think Jim Murphy's a little young to become a you know a snowbird and head to Florida, but maybe there's something that could <laughs> take yeah. him down there. <laughs> well, I, I
0: uh, yeah, I, I have a couple of scenarios um, that uh, I'm I you know I, I I'm, I'm interested in history. Uh, Steve Barry, who was kind enough to write the endorsement of um, of American conspiracy. Uh, is well known as a lawyer who also is fascinated by history, and so I, I we have a natural affinity because that's exactly what impresses me. Full of history, um, uh, on the present and the yeah. mysteries, the mysteries that are still meant to be unraveled.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. We had Steve Barry on the show, and listeners, you can go back and, and catch that episode. Um, he, he had a very exciting thriller. And, and and Michael, like you, I'm drawn to history as well. My next novel uh, is going to be about uh, a historical event set in Charlotte that uh, hadn't been solved in, for 250 years. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of fun. Um, but Michael, you know, listeners might be interested to know that, uh, you know, you're kind of a recovering lawyer like I am, you know, you have some of those same traits, but not in addition to being a, a practicing trial lawyer, you became a law professor. And uh, right. you, you right. went to, to Paul, uh, College of Law, and then John Marshall Law School, where you talk constitutional law. And I'm just wondering how those experiences have influenced your writing, and particularly your recent novel.
0: That's, that's an excellent question. I know you, you characterize yourself as a recovering lawyer. I was thinking about that, and I'd rather call myself a retiring lawyer. And, and I say that because I don't regret my years in the law. Uh, in high school, I was a debater. I enjoyed argumentation my wife can attest, perhaps too much. But I I enjoyed the art of ideas and discussing ideas. uh, Something I feel we're really losing. People really take everything very personally nowadays. Uh, um, But anyway, uh, I enjoyed that part of my life. I enjoyed the earlier years of trial practice precisely for that. And I think it also helped me become a writer because as a lawyer, you have to be able to tell a story to the jury. You have to, especially when I was a lawyer, the jurors in Illinois could not take notes. Now they can. So how are they going to remember a long trial unless you make it into a compelling story? Uh, So that was important help for me. I enjoyed that. But as as I got on in my profession, I realized there was something more gnawed at me more and more every year. And that is that I wanted, as I called it to myself, a life without footnote. Uh, that I wanted to do something that was creative, and not simply taking something that had been in another book and embellishing it, but I wanted to try to add something myself to it. And so that was the second act, that Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald called it, of my life. But I, I relished both parts. It's like I moved from a left brain, focus on reason, logic, to more of a right brain now, more imagination. It's certainly more emotional. As you know, with lawyers... The Emotion is often suppressed in terms of the service of logic, coherence, etc. So, uh, I, I enjoyed that part of my life, but I just always felt that there would be more to my life than simply doing one thing for the rest of my life. I you know people are different, so yeah. I, I, uh, that, that's been my experience with the law,
1: yeah. That's really good, and of course, my recovering trial lawyer label is a little bit tongue in cheek. I think I, you know, have a lot in common with you. I enjoyed all those aspects of being a trial lawyer, being in front of a jury, preparing for it—I didn't enjoy all what was turned into all of the, the the electronic discovery and the hundred right. thousands of emails. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm recovering from that, if, if so to speak. But uh, and and also this idea of, of finding something creative in your act three, I think is is a great uh, a great thing to do. And listeners, I just want to let you know that uh, Michael and I are going to jump over to Patreon after this is over, and we're going to talk about this idea of from law professor two novelists and the kind of things that he went through and thought about and uh, maybe what's the same and different and how we're going to do that. But, uh, but right now, we're going to focus uh, on the latest book. It's American Conspiracy. Um, it is, a, uh, as Steve Barry has said, it's uh, it nails the details of, of high caliber political drama. And so I want to start there, Michael, with uh, uh, the political drama part of the book. Uh, we start out with the assassination of a candidate who's likely going to be the president-elect. A wealthy businessman seeks to throw the election. So, where did this "what if" come from? I mean, I know we have imagination. I know for you, where did this "what if" come from?
0: Well, it was uh, my years of constitutional law. uh, We never discussed presidential elections, but upon retirement, somehow I got involved in the discussion about it, and I started pursuing it, and realized that it was really a very rickety way of electing a president. And when I was in Germany and I tried to explain our electoral college to Germans, trying to use German as best I could and English to supplement it, uh, they were really kind of um, puzzled because it was so complicated. Then along came the election of 2016. And then I knew that there was a novel to be had, that there was something about that election of 2016 that said, we're, we're we're, we're sailing into uncharted waters, and how far can we sail? And so, my book wanted to explore uh, the what I call the booby traps of the text of the Constitution when it comes to presidential elections.
1: Yeah, and the evildoer in this uh, case, the antagonist, Sebastian Senex, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you know Donald Trump blames him for his loss too. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's just another way to to uh, lose an election, right? Uh, have someone <laughs> who's going to get in there <laughs> and do something nefarious. I mean, people are going to believe this is nonfiction, perhaps. What do you think, Michael? Well,
0: th- th- <laughs> the strangest thing is that I have found that fiction, I have a way of sort of predicting in some conscious way what happens. In my first book, I in the middle of it, I had a pope who resigned. And then lo and behold, Pope Benedict resigned. I had to change the book and put the pope into a coma. And no pope had re- resigned since the Middle Ages. So I wasn't safe there. Mm. Then, on writing this book, I thought, well, American conspiracy. I have an uh, a African-American senator from Texas who becomes vice president, then president, through the back door, as I call it. And then along came Kamala Harris. So uh, history has a strange way sometimes of... Um, of uh, being in tune with this sort of feelings that writers have catching the spirit of the times. Uh, and what concerns me, and I hope it doesn't come true, is what if we, our next election is thrown into the House of Representatives? And there's stalemate as to who the next president's going to be. We could have problems that are even worse, perhaps, than we think that we have now. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to explore in my new novel. How far could this go?
1: Yeah, you what, really you really drill down into that, Michael, quite a bit. Uh, is that your constitutional back? I mean, you're sort of exploring this idea, and cause you do it in depth? And, and it's it's you you work out all the permutations about how someone can get elected president who wasn't even running for president, right?
0: Right. Absolutely. I did legal research as well as as uh, the other kinds of research, historical research for a novel. And I'm indebted in a way to an excellent law review article that was written by Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School where he and another writer had posed different scenarios. And I thought, I don't want to write a law review. They've written a marvelous law review. I I want to get to the emotion behind this. What will this do to this country if anything ever happens? Because, you know, we we sometimes we, we see things and they're that could be dangerous, but they're not changed. And the lawyers, as you know, I suppose one of the attributes of a good lawyer is to sense the problem before it arises. And one of my concerns is we know what the problem was with the last election in terms of the Electoral Count Act, and what are we doing to correct that problem or other problems that might arise? They're nothing. So it's a kind of a sleepwalking that makes me uneasy.
1: Yeah, you had you had kind of two plots here going. You had this plot we're going to talk about in a minute with Sebastian Senex, and you got this other piece here involving the House of Representatives and how somebody gets into office. But let's start out with the uh, with the inciting incident uh, with our read today on Charters' podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. You, you're going to read uh, a scene really from the opening of the book, and uh, and so there's probably not any read, any reason for any. Um, explanation, we already know that Jim Murphy is the uh, he's the detective. He's been assigned uh, to extra security detail for a parade for the apparent presidential winner. Uh, and uh, this is that scene that you're going to read um, where after he's distracted, there's an assassination. Uh, uh, anything else you want to say before you pick it up?
0: I'm just going to read a brief quotation by President Joe Biden that I give before I start chapter one. Okay. Imagine what would have happened if, God forbid, Barack Obama had been assassinated after becoming the de facto nominee. What would have happened in America? President Joe Biden said this on August 23, 2019, on the campaign trail. Chapter 1. November 10, 2028. Third day after the election. Chicago, Illinois. After 60 throws of the presidential dice, the election of 2028 came up snake eyes. Media oracles had prophesied Franklin Dexter Walker, the presidential winner by one electoral vote. During a Democratic victory parade to rivet the prediction in the public mind, a ball bounded through police barricades on Michigan Avenue. A girl in a wheelchair cried out for the ball. Detective Jim Murphy stooped to retrieve it and changed the course of American history. The air cracked overhead. The crowd screamed, looking like the old Soviet Politburo on a reviewing stand. Roly-poly politicians in black overcoats stuck for cover. Murphy turned. Walker lay bleeding on the ground behind him. They shot Walker, said the Secret Service agent in charge, fingering a loose earpiece. Get the ambulance. Scanning the surrounding buildings with upturned faces, the Secret Service agents ringed Walker. Murphy scrambled to join the protective circle. This is on your head, Murphy, said the special agents in charge. Get the hell out of our way. The ambulance wailed as it made its way up the line of vehicles to stop near the candidate's limousine. Paramedics rushed FDW to Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Secret Service and the ambulance left Murphy holding the ball in the middle of Michigan Avenue. He gave it back to the shaken girl and headed for the hospital. At Northwestern Memorial, Murphy joined the crowd of hospital staff, media, and police, milling around the ER for news about Franklin Dexter Walker. Serious, was all the media relations department would say. The eyes all around the detective were saying, Responsible for this. At headquarters, they'd be saying, it's Murphy's law again in space. And they'd be right. He had just passed the detective exam and was on his way up to the Chicago Police Department. Awaiting reassignment to the Bureau of Detectives from his current position as security specialist with international relations, he had screwed up his career path again. I want to talk to you, said the Secret Service agent in charge, tugging at Murphy's sleeve. Murphy brushed away the fingers and followed him into a small conference room down the hallway. Closing the door, the agent said, why were you out of position? I wanted to get the ball for the girl. He didn't add that she reminded him of his younger sister who died as a child. And I want to be Sherlock Holmes. That's no excuse. The agent removed his hand from the doorknob. You should have taken the bullet. You don't know I could have stopped it. I've been around long enough. Forensics will back me up. And Walker should have stayed in the limo. He reached out for the doorknob. You know damn well he jumped out the Grandstand without telling anyone. How could I know what shenanigans he was up to? It wasn't your effing job to chase a ball. I don't take orders from you guys. Your brass is going to get an earful about your colossal blunder shook his head. To think you came, recommended. I'm out of here. Murphy yanked the door open and tromped down the hallway. If Walker dies, the agent shouted after him, your career's down the toilet. Murphy paced outside the ER, waiting for the latest about Franklin Dexter Walker. The CPD brass had picked him to join an elite security unit, selected for physical prowess. He still aced the three-mile runs he had done at the police academy. Without breaking a sweat, he had kept pace with the limo gliding along the avenue. The Secret Service agents had huffed and puffed, jogging behind him. He earned the honor of guarding FDW Fair and Square, in a city where things weren't always fair and square. And then along came Murphy's Law and prompted Franklin Dexter Walker to do his shtick as the walking candidate by walking out of the limo right into a bullet. The detective collapsed into a chair and waited. He had failed the Chicago police himself.
1: All right. Well, like all good novels, Michael, you got started us. So you threw us into uh, you know this inciting incident. You threw Jim Murphy uh, you know into the fire right away, which is pretty good. You want to start your protagonist off uh, kind of on his uh, on his heels, so he can try to work his way way out of things. Um, and you know he's trying to investigate now. You know what's going on here with this with this uh, murder of the uh, potential president elect. And, um, you know, suddenly people start disappearing. Um, you know, as you say, these gang bangers on the street, uh, they're, 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 they're gone. They're here one day and gone the next. And uh, you, we find out early in the book, I'm not giving anything away here, but we find out about uh, the antagonist Sebastian Senex. Um, he has a pharmaceutical company. Uh, he is a very rich man uh, and he's doing some, blood research called parabosis, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, which you've described uh, as sort of side-by-side life in Greek. And I'd like to talk about that concept a minute because it really intrigued me. Um, we're not going to give away what happens or how it works or doesn't work in the end of the book, but you're, you know, early in the book, you know, you've got this research going on where um, one person's blood is being infused into another person's body, somehow being recirculated. And it's supposed to, in the mind of Sebastian Sinek, help turn back the clock on his dementia, give him youth, uh, sort of, you know, the fountain of youth in a bottle, so to speak. How did you come across this idea? And is it something that's being experimented with on humans?
0: Um, this, this right. It is. It has been experimented on. Now, the experiment has been basically with mice. And this goes back to the 1950s where a number of uh, scientists uh, at Harvard and UCLA found a curiosity that when you transfuse old mice with the blood of young mice, the old mice seemed to become younger in many ways. The muscle tone improved, their energy level, et cetera. Now, this is all before the discovery of DNA. They had no idea what was going on. The experiment was dropped. It got a little grisly when the mice sometimes were being sewed together. And so I think there was greater sensitivity to the abuse of laboratory animals in the 60s, 70s. For a number of reasons, the the research was forgotten. Then it was revived in the 60s, uh, where there was further uh, evidence that younger blood, did seem to revive mice in many ways. Uh, Now, it got to such a level that Peter Thiel, T-H-I-E-L, who's a Silicon Valley billionaire, I think, began to indicate uh, that he was interested in the process. And there's some indication that he may have funded it, although that's disputed and he some have said he, he can't deny it, whatever. The point is, it occurred to me that a lot of us, as we get older, are thinking about this. What does aging mean? And Can aging be reversed? And I suppose if you're you know, wealthy, you have everything, you're sitting on top of the world, you may not want to leave this world. And so what, how far would you go to try to preserve your life? no matter what the consequences would be for others. So, so now I want to add one more thing. It turned out there were some clinics that were open. We had one in Sarasota. Now uh, it was shut down. <laughs> I wanted to interview the head, but by the time I got to it, it had been shut down. So I think the FDA has kind of put the kibosh on, on it. Now it isn't as crude as simply transferring blood to, a, to an older person. It has to be done in a scientific way where the where the um, blood mingles over a period of time. And then what happens, the blood of the older uh, uh, party is less likely to reject the newer blood because it becomes seen as one organism. So the, the point is the science was cut off uh, because I think it was being potentially abused and there was the fear that it's like with, with COVID that there would be a lot of misinformation it would be misused uh, by people who would want to discover the fountain of youth and pay good money for it. But there is some basis for it and it intrigued me. No end.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great uh, idea for, for a novel. And it's a, in, intriguing uh, to think about, uh, you know, given what's going on in the world today where people are, you know, going to court to try to uh, get judges to let them put, uh, dewormers in their body, you know, to who knows, It's probably going to, somebody's going to read your book, uh, Michael, they're going to want to go to court to, to, to use this particular technology to to reverse time, you know? And, uh, so that's very interesting. Well, okay. So Jim Murphy, he's sort of, uh, stumbling along here, trying to figure out what's going to go on. And he comes across Sebastian Sinek's and, and there are a lot of conflicts that you develop in this book, which are, which is great for, for novels. I was just curious, uh, you know, any particular conflicts or any particular obstacles that you uh, particularly enjoyed placing in Jim Murphy's way in this particular book?
0: Yeah, Jim Murphy. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil sure. the the, uh, the twist in the novel. Right. But Jim Murphy has a relationship with somebody we'll call him a, a, a relative to the family. This relative is an older one who's kind of looked over his career. In fact, he's the godfather, and he represents this. Got the 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 um, this police uh, commander represents the seamy side of the city, the clout side, the city under under the league lights where things get done, um, and as Bismarck said, where you don't want to see the sausage being made. So just just rubs Jim the wrong way because he's very straight. Um, and so throughout this novel there's this tension between them between what it takes to survive in an environment and to what what price will you pay to conform to what is expected of you in the environment in which you're living.
1: Hmm. Yeah, he does. He does have to deal with a lot of uh, challenges in this uh, book and a uh, lot, lot of interesting themes. You got the modern medicine possibilities. You got the chaos in elections. You got what happens uh, when it gets kicked into the House of Representatives. And then, of course, you know, with all good thrillers, you got the power play going on with people that want that power, uh, want to take it and stay with it. Uh, just a few questions here, Michael, about uh, your writing life uh, before we jump over to Patreon and sure. talk some more. Um why did you want to become a novelist? I don't I
0: don't know that I ever sat down <laughs> and rationally said it. I I developed it at I think early age. My I grew up, I think, with love of words. I remember copying down words in the dictionary and um, just seeing how they were. Words that I didn't know I would look up. And there was something that Hemingway marked. Mark, that he'd done the same thing. You have to be in love, that he was in love, or you have to be in love with the dictionary. I suppose that was the primitive start. Um, and then in high school, we had an English program. It was very good. We were expected to read if, it, I think it was voluntary, but you got extra credit, if you read a novel a week. So I got very early, discovered novels. and I enjoyed novels. I didn't think there was anything particularly uh mail about reading novels. so I got into Hemingway who is perhaps Uber macho. but anyway, uh, that kind of developed my love of reading and Scott Fitzgerald and other writers. Uh, and then when I started teaching, I uh, in the middle of my career more near the end, I started I wrote my first unpublished novel, which mercifully remains unpublished. <laughs> Uh, called Broken Love Bees. It was about the 60s. It's kind of amusing. I left practice for law teaching with some misgiving. I thought, maybe it's going to be very quiet. Uh, maybe I'll just vegetate in the ivy, you know, in the halls of ivy, and I'll miss the, the thrill of, of the uh, of the trial, you know, the things that were driving me crazy, the stress. Maybe that's what I needed. First week of teaching, there was a strike by the students about the Vietnam War, and everything was <laughs> downhill or uphill depending on your perspective for the next five years between 1970 and 1975. Yeah. Uh, it was a very tumultuous time. Uh, I think the problem I made as a writer is I tried writing that novel while the emotions were still very raw and very fresh. And I can see, look, I read it over every time. Every once in a while, I read it over, and I can see what the flaws are. So as usual, you learn a lot, often more from your so-called failures than your successes. But it's never been published. So that got me started. And then I heard a lecture by Scott Turow about 1L, his first book, a nonfiction book, his first year at Harvard Law School. And I thought, I was there. I was a first-year law student. I'm not saying I could have written the same book Scott Turow did, but I felt I could have done something. I had those, I had strong feelings, but I didn't act on it. And then I um, I invited Scott Turow to speak at one of my media law conferences, and he graciously accepted, and talk about the lawyer as novelist, which whetted my appetite even more. Uh, and so at that point, I had this unfinished novel. Uh, I married. We moved to Sarasota. My life had changed. And as I tell people, when I got to Sarasota, uh, I was deprived of all excuses not to write. I was an emeritus professor. It was John Marshall. Now it's called the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Law because of the merger. So I had all the time in the world. I thought one day, I'm in a beautiful area. I'm near the beach. I can see the beach. If I don't write there's no way I can blame this on something else about a busy career or anything else. So that really motivated me to keep going. So Mm -hmm. in 2019, I completed the first novel, The Mythor's Conspiracy. And I was especially helped, I think, by attending Thriller Fest in New York. uh, Because I knew I wanted to write a thriller or a mystery like Steve Berry. And um, he was one of the speakers that really motivated me even more because I I just felt we were on the same wavelength, a lot of good uh, information. And so that got me to the first book. The first book, as I said, just inspired me even more to go for the second book.
1: Yeah, that's great. And and given that uh, history, um, I sometimes ask this question, I'll ask it of you. If you could tell your younger writing self something very helpful Based on what you've learned now that you've written uh, one unpublished uh, novel and two published novels, what would that be that would help your younger writer self?
0: It would, I suppose, it would be for me at least. Trust yourself with the guardrails down, because as a lawyer, I, I realized in many ways my thinking was kind of rigid, at least for a novelist. Uh, in fact, I think it's said that Napoleon Bonaparte made the statement. Uh, that a lawyer's mind, something to the effect that a lawyer's mind is so sharp because it's so narrow. <laughs> and I thought, and it's been attributed to various people, but I think the consensus seems to be Napoleon, in some way, alluded to it. And I thought that's true. I mean, it's good in a way because I, you, you have to be concerned about details if you're going to be a novelist. But there are what abstract details, like communism, uh, Trumpism, abstractions that mean nothing terms of an individual life so you have to be aware of individuals individuals are not ideas they're people and they have different conflicting feelings ideas and emotions that was all kind of new to me to get in touch with i started my first novel by writing an outline literally point a one two three four preparing for a trial i would never do that anymore (laughs) now it doesn't mean that you just go completely the other way some can like i I I have an idea. I have to have a I have to have an urge to write, a passion to write it gets me going. I have to say something. But once I get it out, the first chapter or two, it's like, okay, where do I go from here? At that point, I might outline or scribble on some paper, some notes, so I know where I'm going to the next stoplight, if you will, and what, then I don't worry about it. When I get there, then I'll figure out where I'm going to go from there.
1: Yes. Well, That's kind of the way I do it. That's great. I love, I love that perspective. Uh, listeners, we've been talking uh uh, with Michael Polelli. He is the uh, author of American Conspiracy. You can find out more about him, uh, in the show notes at com. Pictures of him, links to his books and his bio and that kind of thing. And also the book cover, which actually shows uh, an upside down White House on the cover, perhaps, uh, indicating that things aren't as they might seem in the White House. So, uh, Michael, it's, uh, it's been great having you on Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, Landis, for this opportunity to be with you.
1: Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.